that's or not. I just want to know the score. Um, quick announcement to add to our previous announcements. As you guys know, this week is the start of our small groups. So we are launching uh, into regathering in small groups. We have taken the last four Sundays, I believe, to highlight. We're going to, again this morning, be part five of Fellowship 101 to reconnect us with the importance of this aspect of the, the life of the church. I do want to ask you, if you have signed up for our West Bank group, that's Phil and Liz Widener's group, uh, meeting on the West Bank on Friday nights, uh, they need to meet with you today, just briefly right after the service. If you could find your way up into the conference room, uh, just some, some issues that have, have taken place in their family, they're going to require that group to, to be adjusted uh, for this semester. So if you can just spare a couple of moments, uh, Phil and Liz wanted just to be able to share that with you personally and uh, give you an update on that and share with you what the plans are beyond. But please don't forget as you walk out of here today about that. Uh, I'm, in the last couple of weeks as we've looked through these topics together and looked at fellowship, uh, these are these may not be the most important messages for some people. And I say that because typically churches face the challenge of gathering people beyond this gathering. So there is, there is an element in people's lives where they understand the importance of part of what the Bible makes important. You know, so the Bible's making important the teaching of God's word. That's, that's a biblical concept. And so people come on Sunday mornings, they make somewhat of a priority for that, although modern busyness is creeping its way into that setting as well. But then there's a downplay of other aspects of what the Bible highlights also. And the Bible highlights something called fellowship. Fellowship is not merely people being in the same room together. Fellowship has got a, a relational quality to it. It has to do with how our lives associate with one another. It has to do with how we treat each other. It has to do with the type of relationships that we're going to intentionally seek to have with one another for years to come. Fellowship has to have feelings that sound somewhat like family a little bit. Right? Family to you is a much more than just a gathering. It's not, it's not a class that you take where you show up and other people are there and then you go home. Right? It's not that. Family has to do with long-term connection and care and relating to each other. Fellowship has that kind of a quality to it. And, and whether or not it has reached the level of significant importance to any of us, today I want you to see that it is significantly important to God. It is not a small matter to him. It is one that absorbs his attention in a profound way. And so us coming together has an agenda in God's heart. Even if we're here today saying, I'm not sure it has an agenda in my own, I have to be honest. But in God's heart, it does. And so I'm going to take some time this morning, and I'm going to extensively quote from Tim Keller. If you've never read Tim Keller after today, you'll be able to say that you have. Um, I mean, I'm always borrowing some thoughts from some folks because I believe in the gift of teacher, in scripture. I believe that's how the, the gift functions. I believe sometimes God uses individual teachers to have insights uniquely into things. That's just how God prepares that man's life and speaks through him. And, uh, 
And, and Tim is going to share some things with us in these quotes today that I, I, I can't say it as good as he says it. And I would rather you see exactly what I think the Lord has us to experience through his words uh, to help us see some things about fellowship. Now, I titled this morning's message, Consumer Groups or Covenant Groups, Understanding the Nature of Fellowship Relationships. What's the nature of what we're building here? Are we building consumer groups or something that we've termed a long time ago, covenant groups? Let's hear from Mr. Keller. He says, throughout history, there have always been consumer relationships. Such a relationship lasts only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. If another vendor delivers better services or the same services at a better cost, you have no obligation to stay in a relationship to the original vendor. In consumer relationships, it could be said that the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. There have also always been covenantal relationships. These are relationships that are binding on us. In a covenant, the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. For example, a parent may get little emotionally out of caring for an infant, but there has always been an enormous social stigma attached to any parent who gives up their children because rearing them is too hard and unrewarding. For most people, the very idea of that is unthinkable. Why? Society still considers the parent-child relationship to be a covenantal one, not a consumer relationship. Sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. And this is a book that I'm quoting from on marriage. So he's talking about marriage relationships here. But I'm going to explain to you why I think this is very relevant to us in just a moment. Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. I, this is, this is a, a learning lesson. He said something about the marketplace. And this is all, I can only make us allergic to this or attempt to so that we can pay attention when it's kind of flowing into our lungs and we're breathing it in. When you, on a daily basis, sit in front of television commercials, shop in stores, when you engage an advertising world, this is an advertising world you live in, everywhere, there's labels on everything, there's billboards everywhere, everything's got a commercial associated with it, everything is trying to become a vendor for you. So it speaks to you like you are a customer, and it presents life to you on the basis of what are you willing to pay in order to get the benefit of what we can provide for you? And you listen to that constantly. It is in your veins 24 hours a day. As long as you're paying attention to anything, it's there. 
We, we, we need to be wise that as I take that in and then I step into the realm of relationships, I've been trained by that. He's extremely right. The marketplace has taught me to shop. And I bring it into relationships. And I'm, I'm willing to fork over so much of the cash of my life to you if I can perceive that there's going to be something in this for me. And so we begin to relate to people on the same basis with which we buy products. And at some point, if you've noticed this, relationships that are going to last for any length of time, they go through these seasons where they cost you more than they're providing to you. Have you noticed that? If you've had a relationship with someone for very long, now listen, if you're one of those people who's become a hyper-consumer, you don't notice that because as soon as it starts to cost you a little bit more than you're getting back, you bail on it just like that and you move on to something new. Now, whether you do that in marriage or not, as he's talking about, or whether you do that in friendships, whether you do that in your family, whether you do that in the church, we've become market-driven consumers in places that that's not how God designed those relationships. So great question here for us. Is your relationship to people in the church, the thing we call fellowship, is it more like a covenant relationship or a consumer relationship? Listen, there's a reason why we call this small group ministry covenant groups. Years ago, and I know... We don't visit this enough to where some of y'all are sitting here going, oh, good, finally, someone's going to explain. Why the heck do you call those things covenant groups? Uh, Well, this would be why. Because something amazing, unique, strange has happened to any one of us who call ourselves Christians. The God of the universe looked upon our need, our plight, the operation of sin and destruction going on in our lives, and he ran after us by putting on the form of a man and taking our place and taking punishment and removing it out of the way by going to a cross and opening up reconciliation between man and God. And God did that out of his initiative and out of his desire. And in a, in a strange way, if you read your Bible carefully, you find out that God the Father made a covenant with God the Son at the cross. His blood being shed was to satisfy God the Father. You can't find any other reason why that blood was shed. That blood was shed to forgive our sins, to forgive us before who? The devil? No. Before us? No. Before God. That blood was presented to God the Father. So it's God the Father and God the Son entering into a covenant relationship. And then we get rescued by God placing us in Christ. So God comes and finds us and places us in Christ. So a group of people, God has grabbed each one of us and placed us in Christ. Now it's because Jesus stands in covenant relationship with the Father that you and I stand in covenant relationship with the Father. It's because of what he did that we are merely the recipients of it. But if you'll notice, we all live at the same address in Christ. We are united to one another because we are united to him. Do you understand that? It cannot function any other way. There's no way that I can be united to Christ and you can be united to Christ and you and I can't be united to each other. 
we are joined to the same God. And so because of the covenant between God the Father and God the Son, you and I come into a covenantal relationship. We don't come into a consumer relationship. We don't come into a relationship where the basis for me relating to you has to do with how you treat me and what I can get from you and whether or not you make me feel accepted and whether or not you validate my hopes and dreams and whether or not you treat me like I'm unique and special and appreciated. That's not the basis of my relationship. Now in the world, that is the basis of relationships. But the basis of my relationship with you and yours with me is that we are united to Christ together and therefore we are in relationship with each other. And so what we walk in is a covenantal relationship. It is not a consumer relationship. Oh, that the church could hear this. The American shop till you drop church could hear this and could stop going to a church for a little season until people become real people. And they get underneath your skin a little bit. And you decide, time for me to move on because you're not treating me the way I want to be treated. Where'd you learn that? I'm a consumer. And I'm only here. I'm only with your product until your product's cheaper than another product or provides for me what I'm after from that product. I'm a consumer. And the church is suffering greatly. Because of this mentality. I'm going to put this in your outline. It is quite a sad commentary. That churches are typically made up of so many shallow, temporary relationships that will never stand the test of time. Because they are built on consumer principles. The day you tamper with the idea that God is moving you on from relationships into other relationships. You ought to have to run through a gauntlet to be sure that God really is releasing you because inside of you is something that wants it to be easier, something that wants to simply avoid the difficulty of relationships that have longevity, that have deepness, that have familiarity, that have true disappointments in them. We just want to move away from that. Now, somehow in our society, this isn't happening, but somehow marriage, because it's treated like a covenantal relationship, we, we know not to treat that that way, although some people still do. But for most people, the church even isn't even in that category. The church is definitely like a decision between shopping at Winn-Dixie and shopping at Rouse's. So right or wrong in this. I used to shop at Winn-Dixie, got to where I didn't like their discount ice cream and went to Rouse's. No big deal. I used to go to that church, went there for a while, liked some things, had some relationships with a few people, just picked up and went over here. No big deal. Okay, this isn't Winn-Dixie. This is the people of God. And either you're not relating to people in a way that builds your life into them so that when you decide, just move on, it tears something apart. And you never built that way because you don't attend church that way. But if you did, then you bear some responsibility as to what will you do when you decide, time to move on. 
Well, I think you should run through a biblical gauntlet to see about when it's time to move on. I don't say it's not time to move on. I just say don't do it as a consumer. Right? Interesting quote here. The, I love this. Just the, I love what this speaks to marriage, but I also think it speaks to church fellowship. He talks about the day you stand with your bride, your spouse, and you commit yourself. You make a promise to that person and pledge your life to them. He says, in promising, you limit options now, right? Remember, you stand there, you take away a bunch of options, don't you? For better, for worse. Okay, so that means if, it gets, if it's good, I'm with you. If it's bad, okay, I just took that option away, I'm with you. Uh, in sickness and in health, okay, so okay, if it's sickness and you become really a high needy person, I'm, I'm with you. You know, for richer, for poor. Okay, so if we're poverty stricken, I'm, I'm taking options in the future away from me. And I'm pledging right now that in that day, I'm going to still be as faithful to you then as I am right now. So in promising, you limit options now in order to have wonderful, fuller options later. You curb your freedom now so that you can be free to be there in the future for people who trust you. When you make a promise to someone, both of you know that you are going to be there with and for them. You have created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. I love that. You know, I read this book. Love the fact that that's the relationship I share with my wife. I love the fact that she has made promises to me that have to do with my future forever. That in the unpredictability of life, who knows what might happen to me in the future. But I have somebody who said, it doesn't matter what happens to you. I'm going to be there for you. Well, I love this little phrase. And I think it's appropriately applicable for the church. A small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. Oh, Lord, let that be said of this church and what it means for us to do biblical fellowship together. That we have that kind of sanctuary of trust of people that, you know, I'm going to be there for you in the future. I'm not just tentatively around you as long as you tiptoe and do all things right. As long as the church does things in a flavor that's one of my favorite flavors, I'm, I'm good but I'm going to bail if, if you change or if it becomes something different than that. Now, now these are quotes I'm extracting from a, a book on marriage. You know, question, is fellowship like marriage? Yes and no. I don't believe that on a one-to-one level, the Bible would speak to us in the same way that it would speak to a husband and a wife in terms of their joined to each other, walking together, dimensions of covenant with each other, I think it would speak to us a little bit differently. You know, we don't share the same relationship with each other as we do as husband and wife. But if I had a scale here, and on one end I could put consumer relationships, and on the other end I could put covenantal relationships, obviously the marriage covenant would exist all the way at the other end, but fellowship would not exist near this end it would exist way over here, pretty darn close to this end. It would be pretty similar to how we treat the relationship of a marriage. Not exactly the same, 
but very similar. And you can see that in some of the terminologies and ideas that are in this, these passages this week. Paul seemed to paint a very, very thin line between how people who are in the church treat each other versus how people who are in a marriage treat each other. Very thin line between those relationships. Keller picks that up. He says, Paul is applying to marriage a general principle about the Christian life. Namely, that all Christians are really, who really understand the gospel, undergo a radical change in the way they relate to people. All Christians. Once you understand the gospel, the impact of its reality so radically changes the way we relate to people across the board. It's not like, I became a Christian and the only place where I now find the expression of that reality is within my marriage. No. Every relationship, and particularly the relationships that exist within the people of God, are expressions that look more like a covenantal relationship than they do like a consumer relationship. Question, do people exist in your life for what they can do for you? You know, how they can further your welfare, your personal interests, your self-project, right? You know, everybody's got a self-project going on. We're seeking to be something, do something, build a reputation, uh, create ambitious activities for us in our lives. And Next thing you know, people begin to be a part of that self-project. And so how you and I relate has to do with how you're doing, providing with me the product I need from you. You know, depending on how close you are, depending on what role you play. If you're, uh, if you're a small group leader, you know, I'm, I'm looking to get something from you for my self-project. Uh, if you're a person sitting next to me in the pew, if you're a person who greets me out front, looking to see what you can provide for me, I'm on my self-project, what you got for me today? How can you help me with that? I'm going somewhere here. You got nothing? Okay, if you get nothing for me a couple more times here, I'm going to need to move on to some other people now, okay? All right, this is, this is the reality, right? Pastors, you know, you're a pastor in my life. Okay, what you got for me? I'm on my self-project. What you got for me, man? All right, well, that's one way. Or do you exist in their lives to be a conduit of life and grace that you continually draw from the source of life and allow to flow to others. Right? Do you understand there's, there's a fundamental difference between those two? It, it's, you know, in my mechanical engineer brain, it's the difference between a vacuum pump and an irrigation system. Right? You know what a vacuum pump does? Right? Can I say sucks from the pulpit, Linda? Because I know you're going to correct me for this. Um, right? That's what, that's what a vacuum pump does. It just, it takes it takes, and it takes, and it takes, and it takes. That's just, as soon as you turn it on, that's what it's there for. It's just there to take. And so if you come walking up, your friend I take from you, and I take from you, and then a family member and I take from you, and I take from you, and the pastor I'm take from you, a small group leader take from you. I'm just here to take because I am such a needy person. You have to help me with my self-project. That's why I exist. That's why you exist, by the way. You exist to help me with my self-project. But when one encounters the gospel and meets the God who is the source of life for you, he sort of drowns that pump. He swallows it up. 
and he transforms it and we become new creations. And as new creations, we move in relating to people differently. We go from desperately caved in people who are dead on the inside, needing everybody on the outside to provide something to us, to a people who now from the inside have been overwhelmed with the life of God that's now come to reside inside of us. And we've become now this irrigation system so that when I get around people, I pour out on you. And then I pour out on you. And then I pour out on friends. And then I turn around and pour out on family. And I pour out on the covenant group leader. And I pour out on the people in the church. I am a giveaway person by design. The moment that happens, it transforms every relationship. Because now, who you are and who you are not, it's a very different experience for me now. Because you may not be a lot of things to me. And that won't, for one second, prevent me from being who I'm called to be to you. This is why your marriage will last. But this is why any relationship that's supposed to have longevity in the kingdom of God will last. That we're not in it to see what I can get from you. Listen, don't anybody show up in your small group this week with this, you know, you walk in the front door and you flip on the vacuum switch. Just people can hear you walking in. The furniture's shaking across the room. You're just sucking things off the wall, you know? And, and you're just desperate to see, what are these people going to be like? What's this leader going to be like? Who are you going to be to me, man? Because I just suck everything into me. I'm on a giant self-project. You walk into that group with a sense of turn on your sprinkler and see who you can get wet. Provide into people's lives. You know, you know why you can do that? You, you can do that because of what's been abundantly provided to you. It's the basis of what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who has received life from the living God deposited inside of us. I, I, I don't need everybody to be on their A game and be perfect for me. God has released me from that. Does that mean I don't care how you treat me? Well, well, no, I am still human. It does matter, and I will be disappointed. I might even walk off and pout every once in a while. Until I, I get a revelation again. that Okay, what's the basis for relating to that person? Well, they didn't do right by me. So don't even expect me to get back around them. No, no, I asked you, what's the basis for you relating to that person? Uh, I'm an irrigation system. That's right. What do irrigation systems do? Do they, they suck the tomatoes off the vine? Is that what they do? No, no, they water the tomatoes. That's what they do. So go back and water them. But that's a, that's a rotten tomato over there. Yes, it is. <laughs> go water it anyway. <laughs> that's the difference, right? Now, I want to just show you this in Ephesians for a moment. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, I think I put references there in your outline. There's a, there's a little verse that's tucked away in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It just kind of sneaks in there, right? And it gets associated with another thought. And sometimes this is why this gets overly localized. But it is, it is the, I want to call it the doorway verse into the relationships in the book of Ephesians. Now, the book of Ephesians is going to turn a corner when it gets into chapter 5. And it's going to go specific in relationships. It's gone general before it goes specific. But it's going to go into marriages first. 
relationships between husbands and wives there, then relationships between masters and slaves, and then relationships between parents and children. So it's going to traffic in, how does all this gospel stuff work out in the places where we relate to each other? But it really has already been doing that, as we'll see today. But there's this one particular verse when we get to verse 18 that is, it is critical. It's critical. Right, so let's, let's move our way there by starting in Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. Hold on to that, those two words. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all, through all and in all. Right, do you see now why we relate to each other? The one God is in all. He's in me and he's in you. The basis of our relationship is not just two individuals trying to find some common ground to get along with each other. The same God who's in me is in you. And we have a unified relationship as a result. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, let me just comment here this one another context. You know, if, if you're just picking up the Bible for the first time, you, you, you will probably make a common error with it. Uh, right? we've, we've come out of an understanding, I'm a person, live on planet Earth, I'm a human being, God is God. We pick the Bible up and we think the Bible is just God talking to everybody. And so this is, this is God talking to everybody. So we read these verses and we think, uh, well, so, so who's the one another? Well, it's just God talking to everybody. So this is just God talking to everybody everywhere. No. The Bible has an audience And from that audience, God speaks to the world. The audience in this passage is the church. It is God inspiring the Apostle Paul to address people who belong to Christ. So this is not a letter, right? And this is Ephesians. You know, Ephesians was a good-sized city back then. So this is not like uh, a letter from God to New Orleans. Uh, No, this is a letter from God to the churches in New Orleans. So it immediately draws our attention to a particular type of people. So what's highlighted here is these are relational factors, defining relational factors for the church with each other. That's what we're about to look at here. Um, The church seems to get this. The, The church seems to get the idea that there are lost people all around us. The church seems to have a little bit of a sense of the importance of how the church relates to the lost. It's very important how the church relates to the lost because they're lost and, and, and they face judgment. And, and God in his righteousness will judge those who are outside of his grace with his wrath. So we have an awareness that that's an important thing. These folks over here are important. So church, when you get around the lost, you make sure and now be on your best behavior. Right? Just, you know, don't ruin your testimony for the lost. Now, and we kind of get that, right? We don't want to put on this sinful, fleshly show 
for the lost because we're, we're trying to share the gospel with them and they need the gospel. But when you read these passages, that is not the concern here. The concern is not for the church to be on its best behavior because the world is lost. This is just God stepping back and going, you know, I made you all mine. I associated my name with something called the church, the fellowship of the church. So the one another and how you treat each other, it has to do with you relating to each other in a way that just simply reflects my glory. It just has to do with you being like me. That's all it has to do with right here. And then the byproduct is this light comes into the earth and shines like a bright beacon into places like New Orleans. Do you understand if you lose sight of that, this is what you'll do. You'll be a person who has this great burden for the lost as a Christian because you understand go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so you want to reach the lost and then you want to invite them into this cancerous group of people over here. Just treat each other horribly. And they come into it and, and they don't experience these things. They don't, they don't go, wow, I've never been around such a people who love one another like this, who care for each other this way. It's like we, we've got this, let's go out and reach them, but we bring them into something that doesn't show the glory of God to them any further. So we've got, we've got this front door on this raggedy building. I mean, it's just this shiny thing. It's doors of elegance to the T, right? It's incredible. And then you open it up and it's like some rat infested warehouse down by the river. Because somehow we got this idea that we just need to make a really good impression on the lost people. You want to know how you make an impression on the lost people? Live like the family of God in an amazing way. Just do what the New Testament says. All these one another's, they have to do with you and I just being who God's made us to be. And I think the light then begins to shoot out of the church into the world, into the dark places of the world. And people who are doing, like we said last week, people in this world are broken people. They're broken people because they're desperate to have the things that God supplies to us. Just like we, we're desperate for that. And so here we are experiencing it and we can invite them in to experience it with us, which is what God had planned. You don't, you don't find evangelism in the church where, or in the scriptures where somebody's invited to know Christ apart from the church. They're invited to know Christ through and amongst the church. So how we live towards each other has a little bit to do with this. So these one another's have to do with that, right? Ephesians 4 is, is dripping with relational adjustments. You're going to be one anothering and you're going to need to make a few adjustments in your attitudes about how you go about doing that. So he, here's some attitude adjustments. These are relational, I call them relational responses. Humility and gentleness. Those two words extracted from relationship lose their meaning. These are relational words. Humility has to do with my my self-attitude toward others. So I get around you with an attitude of humility. It has to do with how highly I think of myself. Where I put myself on the spectrum of what's due me. So do I get into a relationship with you with a high view of me? Therefore, you should have a high view of me. And one of the problems with you is you can never get there. That's your problem. You can never seem to figure out how much respect you owe me. That's your problem. 
Right, so you bring that into a marriage. You get outraged because your spouse responded to you in a way that treated you like you were less than who you say you are. Isn't that why we have problems? This is a relational adjustment. So my attitude about me around you has to do with humility. Gentleness has to do with how I, how I touch another person's life. Right, that's what gentleness is about. Relate to one another in gentleness. When you touch a person's life physically, emotionally, in the words that you use, be gentle when you touch them. Patience. This this has to do with relational difficulties over time. Some things just don't go away, do they? Some things just people are working through stuff that's going to touch you for a while and then for a longer while and then it's still going to be there for a while. And so God imports, hey, in this one another setting, be patient with each other. Bearing with one another. Bearing with, if there ever was a relational adjustment, it's that one. Bearing with, yeah. Yeah, as in putting up with, uh, yeah, exactly. Putting up with, that's a good translation. Put up with each other. Eager to maintain unity. Right, do, do you notice when these words come to life? It's when relationships get friction in them. And when there's heat. And when there's a brokenness and there's disappointment in them. That's when all these words all of a sudden take on their deepest, most important, richest meaning. It's when you wrong me that I need all these. That I need to be humble about who I am. And the fact that simply another human being with flaws, feet made of clay, just like me, has done something less than the desirable in my life. I get that. I get that because I did something like that to that person right over there just last week. And they've done something hmm, somewhat similar to me this week. Okay, humility. Then responding in gentleness and bearing with one another. See, all these words come to life when our relationships start to come apart. And that's what fellowship is about. If you're going to have a relationship for very long, these are the things that will make it keep going with each other. Verse 3 brings up this revelation about this unity, right? We're called to this unity, and then he, he stops and makes a point about what that unity is. It's the unity of God, the Father, and the Son. It's, it's we're brought into this unified relationship that God shares with himself, and then we're brought into it together. And it maintained the unity of the spirit. So something just got injected into our relationship right there that may never have existed in our lives. If you're an unbeliever, it definitely didn't exist in your life. But it just got injected into your life. This is an, this is an agenda for every Christian. This is a motivational aspect as to why am I going to do what I'm going to do next to you? Am I going to do it because you have made me feel good about you? Because you've made me feel good about me, therefore I can feel good about you now. Is that why I'm going to do this? Or do I have another motive injected in me? Whether it's a, it's a marriage that's going bad or a friendship that's going bad or a church fellowship that's going bad. I've got this other motive injected in me. It is maintain unity. Because it says something about God. And if you decide, I can't. I can't do that. I cannot maintain unity with this person. You're now saying something about God. You're just saying something distorting about him and inaccurate about him. So this informs our relationships. I mean, if, 
you know, if we're back in the older times, medieval times, or times of Old Testament, and the king, let's say the, the king is about to drink from the sacred chalice at his child's wedding, and you, along with five others, have been appointed to pick up the table upon which the sacred chalice of wine sits, filled with wine, and pick it up and carry it carefully to the king that he may celebrate this event. And your goal is to not spill it. That's a defining thing for you right now, isn't it? Whatever it is that you'd like to do, and you, you're carrying this, you have this privilege of carrying this to the king, you and five others. And so the five others you are, are going to need to figure out how do we walk so that the table's not doing this while we're, we're going to have to figure out how to walk together in this. And, and, and what if you get bit on the calf by a sandfly along the way? Uh, you're just going to have to figure out how to go and stay in step because if you take your hand off and scratch that, then you're going to spill this. You know, that's a... That, that is defining how you walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. And in, in an interesting way, that's kind of exactly what we've been given. We're going to bring to the king who is celebrating at a wedding feast the enjoyment of drinking from this cup. Don't spill it along the way. And these, all these admonitions have to do with don't spill it. How you walk matters with each other. Where's this ability to do this come from? Verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us. How can we do this? How can we have this amazing ability to bear with one another and have humility towards one another? Walk in unity when it's not easy to walk in unity. Come together when we're disagreeing, when we're heatedly disagreeing. How can we do that? Because grace was given to each one of us. Ephesians 1 through 3 is just loaded with grace. It's not until you get to chapter 4 here where you're, you begin to turn the corner into what do you do with this grace now? Right? If you study Ephesians carefully, you get these two steps back to back. All the indicative statements that just take you into the realm of here's what God has done for you. Here's what God has done for you. Here's what God has done on your behalf. Here's what God has done in his son. Here's what God has done in reconciling you to him. Here's what God, here's what God, here's what God has done. And then you get to chapter four and the tone of the letter changes to now go and do this and go and do this and go and do this and go and do this. Why can we do all this with each other? Because we are mindful of the grace that we have received. And we are overwhelmed. We are confused by it. We are mystified and stupefied that God would treat us the way he has. And so therefore we relate to one another. And the moment you go to do this, practically speaking, it's going to cost you something. If relationships in your life aren't costing you anything, it's probably because you're not doing them very well. When was the last time you were disappointed by somebody in your life? Just think for a second. Don't look around while you're thinking this, though. 
Last time your heart really settled in your stomach in a really heavy way because you were really hurt, really disappointed. Now, let me guess who it was. The greeter at Walmart, right? Did I get it right? Did I get it right for anybody? Greeted the person who came in before you, but not you, right? You just devastated by that, weren't you? You could give a rip about that guy. It's the people close to you, the people who you let in, the people who you do life with, the people who you join yourself to. Those are the ones who can hurt you, who can make all this stuff come to life and give opportunities for everything these passages are are talking about. Now, you can avoid people. And and what you're basically doing is saying, you know, Keith, I, I just have a preference to avoid Anything that requires me to be humble, gentle, or bear with others. I just, none of those things appeal to me. So I just, if you're saying relationships require that, then I'll just do away with relationships. How's that? Uh, It doesn't work. It doesn't work if you have a heart to glorify God. Because remember what God did? He ran ran you down and found you. And then he put you in a group of people. He put you in relationship with others. So I know we have, but you know, you don't understand. Listen, I've avoided people. I've avoided friendships because of this. I've avoided being married because of this. I, I avoid this kind of stuff. You can't avoid this because whether you liked it or not, God put you in his body and he puts you in relationship with others. And if you have an ounce of desire in your heart to bring glory to God, you cannot avoid these relationships. They are God's way of putting himself on display in this world. So you don't understand how confusing this is. I mean, God is God, so he's not confused. But it is confusing from God's perspective that God chooses to sort of bring people together so that this brilliant light can shine into the world. And what we do is we get saved, avoid those people, and try and run around telling everybody the gospel. Part of you right now is listening to me say that, and you're going, well, yeah, but isn't the gospel the gospel? So isn't it okay for us to do that? Hey, we'll just... Pick the whole Bible up and read it. Don't just pick up a track that explains to you verses that explain justification to a person. You're wrong and your only hope of being right is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And, all right, that's fine because that is in the Bible. But when you pick the Bible up, let me just ask you, do you find any people in here? Right? If I shook this thing out, you'd, you'd, you know, people would come out with turbans on their head, Old Testament you'd find the church in the Old Testament. It's not a new invention. You'd find the people called the Israelites. They all fell, boom, a whole bunch of them fell out just now. And then you'd find the New Testament church in here, everywhere. So all these instructions, all these ideas, they find themselves into a group of people. They do not find themselves into an individual. You don't shake this and the only thing that falls out of it is you. Oh, look at that. That's me, me in the Bible, me in the Bible. This is loaded with people because in a unique way, God has chosen to put his glory on display through the gathering of people. This is why we emphasize fellowship because God emphasizes it. And, and listen, if you do what the Bible never told you to do, well, I just go in there and extract out, extract out all the apologetic verses. I just pull all that stuff out and then I use it to argue with people who are lost about why they need to be saved. That's, that's, that's the great commission, isn't it? 
No. The Great Commission is the church going into all the world with the gospel. It's not a bunch of independent individuals going and doing that. It's a collection of people doing it together. A collection of people that look like covenantal relationships doing this together. All right, I'm about to go into edit mode here, so give me just a second. Because there's no way we're going to make it through all this. All right, jump with me to Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Right? Very short passage, lots of helpful thoughts here. Therefore, right? We've always known this. When you see the word therefore, what do you do? You look to see what it's there for, right? So this is a summary point. This is a, a moment where the Apostle Paul is reaching back into the rich thoughts that he's just sprinkled before us. And now he's summing that up and saying, here's the effect that those things have on us. Therefore, with all this grace that we've received from God, therefore, be imitators of God. Right? That goes back to original design. Be the image of God. Well, what's the image of God look like? Well, it looks like Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. Be an imitator of God by giving yourself. Be an irrigation system into people's lives. Be that. Because that's what it is to imitate God. That's what God is like. God finds us and pours himself out on us. God does not find us like a vacuum needing to extract from us something that he doesn't have and that we might have. He comes to us to give and to lay his life down and to bless and to impart. The flow is this way from God. And God says, well, be imitators of me in that regard. Give yourself. Tim Keller says, the Bible says that human beings were made in God's image. That means among other things that we were created to worship and live for God's glory, not our own. We were made to serve God and others. We were made to serve God and others. That means paradoxically that if we try to put our own happiness ahead of obedience to God, we violate our own nature and become ultimately miserable. Miserable. Like some people aren't realizing, why is it that you're so miserable? That's why. Right there. That line right there is why. Because the purpose, the design inside of you for which God has made you a new creation is for you to serve God and others. And you spend all your time trying to get others to serve you. And you're miserable. You're miserable for two reasons. One, because you can't get people to do it. And two, because it clogs up your system. God's trying to flow out of you and you're trying to suck stuff into you. It just makes for a miserable existence. He says, if you seek happiness more than you seek me, God's saying, you will have neither 
you seek to serve me more than serve happiness, you will have both. It's just the mystery of how things operate because it's how God designed it to operate in our lives. So we come to this key doorway passage here. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, some of us have only memorized this verse because of what's on the front half of it. What comes before this? Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So what we've done is we've, we've taken that concept and we've glued it to do not get drunk with wine. And we've always used this verse to have to do with, well, see, God doesn't want you to be drunk. He wants you to be filled with the Spirit. So it's almost like filling with the Spirit and drunkenness are the conversation going on here. Is that what we've been talking about all this time? Drunkenness? I thought all the way through from chapter 4 all the way through, and I, I cut off a bunch of stuff. You can go back and read it. It was all about relating to one another. And now he's about to get specific in the relating to one another and talk about husbands and wives and slaves and masters and parents and children. And right in the middle of that, he highlights the second thing that this Bible makes known to us why we are the people that we are. One is the grace that has been given to each one of us. Two is the Holy Spirit. Why are we who we are? Because of the grace that has come to us overwhelming us and placing us right with God and because of the spirit who empowers the lives that we live. Therefore, be filled with the spirit. And then he quickly moves from being filled with the spirit into relational things, addressing one another. He's right back to one another again, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh, by the way, husbands, wives. Right, this is the flow of the, of the epistle here. So for you and I to do the one another thing, we, we need to be full gospel in the sense of Holy Spirit-filled people. You know, sometimes we think the Holy Spirit's only necessary if we're gonna you know, have some special activity like, you know, prophecy or speaking in tongues or gift of faith or healing when we need the Holy Spirit. Uh, Be filled with the Spirit so you can do all the one another's that are in these passages. You can treat each other a certain way. Tim Keller says, so only if you have the ministry of the Spirit in your life will you be fully furnished to face the challenges of marriage in general. And only if you are filled with the Spirit will you have all you need to perform the duty of serving your spouse in particular. And I say that's true of the church as well. Now, Eric, you can go ahead and come back up, brother. All right, let me zero this in on relating to each other in this, this small group fellowship kind of a way. Where are we trafficking this? Where are we launch out from this week? Small groups getting together. What are we aiming at? Who am I going to be when I walk through that door? What am I expecting of others? What am I expecting of me? as we embrace this. Well, Paul's already laid out what it is that makes our relationships what they are. It is the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes our relationships what they are. Keller says, without the help of the Spirit, without a continual refilling of our soul's tank with the glory and love of the Lord, 
such submission to the interests of others is virtually impossible to accomplish for any length of time without becoming resentful. Right? Any, anybody here ever experienced some resentfulness in your relating to others? He says, I call this love economics. You can only afford to be generous if you actually have some money in the bank to give. In the same way, if your only source of love and meaning is your spouse or, or others, then anything he or she fails you, it will not just cause grief, but a psychological cataclysm. If, however, you know something of the work of the Spirit in your life, you have enough love in the bank to be generous to your spouse or to others, even when you are not getting much affection or kindness at the moment. Here's a question that pastors ask people. I'll bump into somebody and they tell me they're a believer. It won't be long until I come back to the question of, so tell me about your church. Where do you go to church? I always love when somebody faithfully tells me that they go to church and then I ask them, who's the pastor over there? And they can't think of his name. (laughs) Tells me a lot about their involvement. So what do you do when you bump into Christians who speak of church involvement, involvement in small groups, and their response sounds like this. Well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't always go to church or you know, I don't, don't kind of do the small group thing because I just, I just don't get anything out of it. I just don't get anything out of it. Spoken like a true consumer. Spoken like a vacuum cleaner on high speed. I just don't get anything out of it. All right, did you sign up for small groups because your only mode was, let me see what I can get out of this? Or did you sign up for small groups so that you could see what you could provide to others through the means of fellowship? See, one is a consumer mentality. The other is a covenantal mentality. So are, are, are we joining together in consumer groups? Or are we joining together in covenant groups where when I walk through the door, I don't walk in like this vacuum cleaner looking for everybody to be on their best behavior for me. Well, what if you go to the meeting and you just find, you know, I mean, some of the people just weren't all that interesting, you know. Or, you know, I mean, the leader was nice and everything, but I mean, he didn't really say anything I didn't know already. Both of those things are very likely to happen, by the way. So what do you do? You walk away, you get in the car with your wife, you're driving home, you go, well, I don't know. I didn't really get anything out of that. You want to go back next week? Well, I don't know. Let's try it one more time. Do you understand you're a consumer? You understand that? You understand how much you have missed reading the New Testament? 
When you get in the car on your way home from your first meeting, ask each other, did you pour yourself out on anybody? Did you share something that helped the group to have faith in a big God? Did you tell the story that you're a little bit scared to tell because it doesn't exactly put you in the best light, but it does show off the faithfulness of God and how he met you in the midst of your foolishness? Did you tell that story so the group could get faith for their dark season of life? Did you reach out to somebody? Did you introduce yourself to the awkward new person who didn't seem real comfortable to get around anybody and something inside of you said, if I go talk to that person, it'll only be weird. And they won't provide anything for me that I'd like. But you recognize, but I'm here to serve them. And I don't know that person. And they don't look like they know anybody here. So I'm going to go pour myself on them. And I'm going to care for that. And I'm, I'm going to drain myself listening to their story. You ever go home from a meeting tired from listening? I, I think if you're going to be a pastor, you'd better learn to be a good listener. If you're not a good listener, don't waste your time. Because you're going to listen to a lot of people tell you their stories. A lot of people. And I go home from meetings exhausted from listening because I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to listen to who you are and to what God is doing in your life and what aspect of seeing God is happening or not happening by what you've said. I'm not just there. It's like, Hey, I read a lot this week. Can I just regurgitate all that I read to you this week? I know you came to talk to me, but can I just talk to you the whole time? Some of us never learn how to care for people by listening to them. Right, when you get in your car this week and you go home, ask yourself how you did in pouring yourself out on others. Not what the group did for you, not what the meeting did for you, not what the leader did for you. But how did you do in living towards others and giving away what God has given to you? All right? Let's stand up together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this week to gather with your people, to come together with the people that you have sought out and saved and brought to yourself and gathered into the church. Lord, we've been studying of the richness of fellowship these last few weeks. So Lord, now thank you for the opportunity to launch into that realm, to launch toward one another with intentionality and care, with the power of the Holy Spirit to give and to bless, to stand in faith believing that he who waters will himself be watered. Lord, would you release us from being obsessed with being watered? Lord, you'll take care of that. That person over there, you're going to make sure an awaken in them to sprinkle on us while we're busy irrigating others. Lord, one day you will reach out to lost people through this church. You will bring them into this place. 
You have been doing that. Some are here this morning as a result of that. Or may it be that what they heard in the testimony of the gospel that introduced them to Christ, when they come together with the people of God, they just see it more deeply, more richly, more light, more amazement at the transforming effect of grace in our lives and how we treat one another. So Lord, guard us from being consumers and release us into being covenant keepers for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a great week. Hey guys, don't forget.